Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey guys, Kevin Cruz here. Welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show, where we help you to stand out and to get ahead at work. Now, as you know, we like to switch things up here, keep it interesting, and to continue that tradition, today on the podcast, instead of me interviewing an expert guest, we're going to have the guest deep dive into their topic. You see, you'll be hearing audio from a LeadX webinar. Now, of course, there are dozens of great webinars on leadership, management, communication, productivity, and more, all archived in the LeadX app. Just visit leadx.org for more information about our webinar archive. So enough on the setup, enough background information. Here is Vanya Mathis to introduce our guest and to hand it over to them. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar today with Marlene Chisholm. Marlene is a consultant, executive educator, and the author of three books, including Stop Workplace Drama, No Drama Leadership, and Stop Drama in Your Healthcare Practice. Today, she's going to be showing you how you can learn the language that, res that promotes a responsible culture, how to understand the relationship dynamics that shape your company's culture, and how to discover how executive conversations can drive performance and why uh, avoiding those difficult conversations can be very costly. So uh, before we get started, please just make sure you're closed out of all your other browser windows and programs. They can eat up your bandwidth, slow things down, cause some audio issues. If you have questions for Marlene, she's going to take them at the end after her presentation. You can submit them at any time uh, in the chat box or in the Q&A function. It's located at the bottom of your screen. So uh, we're ready to get started. Please welcome Marlene Chisholm. Thank you so much, Vanya. And I want to say welcome to you. I'm really excited to be here with you. I know what kind of a commitment that takes in today's time very difficult to do live programs. So I hope I give you value and it was worth it. So we titled this three ways to talk your way to a stronger culture. Well, if it was really that easy, I'm going to give you some language though and some techniques that you can use today because I believe that it needs to be practical. So you've heard the saying, watch your thoughts, they become your words. And you've heard, watch your words, they become your behaviors and watch your behaviors because they become your culture. And you know, there's been some definition of culture that um, it's, it's all about behaviors. However, when I was working with uh, some of the experts writing my last book, No Drama Leadership, it's really more than behaviors. It's really about shaping culture and behaviors just being a part of that. So the real question that we're here to consider is how do leaders shape culture? Well, we shape culture through thoughts, words, and behaviors. But I really want to be clear, too, that it's not just about leadership and it's not just about thoughts, words, and behaviors, although that's the scope for today. I just want to say very briefly that there are many influences that, that come into play when we talk about culture. And one of those that was brought to my attention was by Dr. Edgar Schein, one of the the best, the most well-known leaders in, in culture was the MIT uh, Sloan professor, just a genius when it comes to culture. And when we were talking about my book and I was seeking his endorsement, he said, you know, it's the way we do things on the inside uh, and get along so that we can produce results for the outside. So in other words, we have the internal influences and the external. So today we'll be talking mostly about those internal influences that the leaders can actually uh, take action on. So I first want to share with you a foundation that is in every single bit of my work, in every single book. It's something that I share at workshops. It's something I do in speaking engagements because it helps people to get a visual framework of how to look at the ways that we achieve results and the barriers that come into play when we're on the, on the journey of it, achieving results. So this is a new language that I often refer to in workshops called the language of the island. And the idea is that we're always trying to get from point A to point B. So you see the little guy in the rowboat, you see the island, and that little rowboat can represent just you as, your, as an executive, you as a leader, um, or it can represent your entire team. So this is useful no matter what your 
what your role or your title. We're always trying to get to what I call the island called peace and prosperity. So you could call that your profits, your revenue goals, your end of the year, your end of the quarter goals. Nonetheless, we refer to it as getting to peace and prosperity because there's only one reason we want anything and that's because we're going to have a sense of completion and peace about it or we're going to expand in some ways, either revenue or, or personal growth. So we're always trying to get to peace and prosperity. But then we have an obstacle and the obstacle, as you can see, is the shark. And in my body of work, I talk about drama a lot. I've written a lot about drama, but I use drama in a different way um, than what we typically think of it. So my definition is that drama is any obstacle to peace and prosperity. So wherever we're trying to go, there's this drama, this something that stands in the way. On the middle level management arena, what I see for those that are in that level or those that are leaders over that level, we see a lot of relationship problems. We see that someone won't get their work done or we see um, complaining and gossip. It's, it's that relationship issue becomes drama or it becomes the personal issues that employees have and the reason why they're late at work or the reason you're having turnover. There's a lot of obstacles that come up that keep you from getting to peace and prosperity. And so I often ask in workshops, I ask the audience, so I'll ask you, how do you know what someone's drama is? I'm going to pause for a moment. How do you know what someone's drama is? Doesn't matter what their level. Well, how you know is that they talk about it because we human beings cannot help but talk about whatever bothers us. And it becomes this, it becomes my shark, my shark, but you don't understand my shark. And as you can see, the more we focus on the problem, the bigger the problem gets. And we then become uh, enmeshed in a problem-oriented way of thinking instead of an outcome, instead of thinking about what do we want to create. And so what happens is we have these sharks and the cultural issues include both the visible and the invisible. And I talked about some of those visible just a moment ago, how it shows up in relationships with the, the office drama, the backstabbing, um, the, the gossip, the power struggles that happen. But it happens on a major level in major organizations. We're seeing a lot of visible drama in politics right now. And jokingly, um, people used to say, well, no, no wonder we have a lot of drama. We have a lot of women in our department. And then I would jokingly say, well, my next book is going to be called Men Have Drama Too, because all you have to do is look at sports and politics, and it's a much bigger form of drama. But the point that I make is that we all have obstacles to our growth and to the, the bottom line, to the end results. But we are going to look at both the visible and the invisible because I think it's really important to, to understand that what you're seeing on the surface may not be the facts and, and the reality. It's just what you're seeing on the surface. And so the question then becomes, how do these obstacles, how does drama manifest? Well, in the workplace, you're going to see it manifest in communication and relationships, whether that's with your clients, um, your patients, your customers, your employees. Um, the productivity levels, you're going to be able to at least measure it on some way. You're going to be able to see observable behaviors and observable results. But on the bottom level, on the in, in the invisible realm, where the drama and where the cultural issues are really, I guess, rooted or where they are unseen, it really has to do with the thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and decisions. And that's really becoming a big part of my work right now is to help leaders gain that clarity on what thoughts, what emotions, what beliefs, what decisions are driving these cultural issues. And that's outside of the environmental and legislative impacts that, that we have regarding culture. So I also have a little test and I'll ask people, do you think it's really important to nip drama in the bud? And as you can see, I use a lot of analogy. I use a lot of pictures because I want people to get out of their logical thinking mind and into more a picture type of mind so that you can clearly see what's really going on when there's cultural issues. And of course, everybody agrees, yes, we should nip drama in the bud. Well, that is a trick question because if you nip drama in the bud, it's as if you have a field of dandelions and you clip off the bloom and underneath you have a root system and the next year you have a field full of dandelions. So culturally, how we often nip drama in the bud instead of getting to the root is that we move someone to a different department. And I've heard this even at very high levels. Well, they have three years to retire and we just can't 
let them go. We have to kind of ride this out. We got to milk this out until they retire. Or we play a lot of games like, um, well, we're going to show them who's boss and make their job very difficult until they voluntarily quit. This creates a culture of mistrust. It creates a culture of drama. And this avoidance, we're going to talk about this later. Um, and I'm also going to share with you how to identify roots and pull that up. So this is um, kind of a layered approach to, to talking about culture. So I'm going to answer the question so that you know where we're going in the presentation. How leaders shape culture is through clarity, connection, and conversations. And that wasn't on purpose that I had the three C's, but I absolutely love the way it sounds. I love the way it looks because it's easy to remember. So if you just start to think throughout this presentation, I as a leader or my executives, as we're running the company, here's the three ways that we are shaping culture, perhaps without even knowing it. It's in clarity. It's in our connections and it's in our conversations. So that's going to be the remainder of what I talk about as well as the root systems always present. Because once you see the roots of drama and the obstacles that prevent you from creating the culture that you say that you want, you now have that piece and you also have the, the clarity, connection and conversation piece, which you can then design some sort of a initiative, a program, a training, a leadership development so that you can consciously create your culture instead of letting it, it run to chance. So the first piece is that we need to get clear. And clarity is a big part of my work. It's, it's been something that's been a part of my own development. Um, I have struggled with clarity in my own career path and in developing my consulting practice. And the good news about that is because I understand it, I'm really compassionate about it. And we do not need to fear the lack of clarity, but we need to understand the distinction of where we're clear and where we're not. Because the first root of all drama is a lack of clarity. Now, I talk about this a lot, and I'm going to give you resources along the way that you can jot down. You're more than welcome to email me afterwards as well, but this gives you other places to look for some of this content on a deeper level. So in the first book, Stop Workplace Drama, published by Wiley, the, this was a premise that I've used throughout my career. I use it in my life because it's a, it's a universal principle that in all drama, there's always a common root, and the first root is a lack of clarity. So here's the things that you should know about that. In all drama, there's a lack of clarity, and then the second component of this is the one with clarity always navigates the ship. Now, the reason I have that piece in is that I have worked in the, you know, years ago, I worked a lot with middle-level managers as they were growing, and as, as the um, companies were developing their their leaders, they would ask me to come in and do some, you know, frontline or like middle level leadership training. And the questions would come up, you know, I've got a pot stir, I've got a queen bee, I've got this person that's really difficult to, to handle. And so I would ask the question, well, why does, why do they do what they do? And the, and the, the answer is, well, because it works. So if you're not able to guide your team, if you're not able to create that collaboration, there's someone who knows what they want more than the leader. And so the one with clarity always navigates the ship. So if you are in the boiler room shoveling coal, so to speak, it means you're not on the top deck. It means you've lost your vision. It means you've lost your clarity. But here's the good news. And I love this. And I refer back to it. every time I'm coaching someone and the problem seems overwhelming. Every time I'm doing a strategy session and it seems like, oh, my God, there's so many parts and pieces. I just say to myself and I remind my client that clarity can change any situation and it will change your experience and it will truly start to shape your culture. I wanted to share some interesting facts about clarity. I'm doing a lot of study on this and have found you can find this. All you have to do is type it into Google and you'll find Gallup, you'll find talent management, you'll find ATD. It's, it's out there everywhere that only half of employees strongly agree that they understand what's expected of them at work. My belief is that that's because we are changing so rapidly and we're throwing, I would say we're throwing tennis rackets at at your employees and saying row harder and faster. They really don't know and can't clearly define what success looks like. And especially in the more entrepreneurial, maybe small to medium enterprise businesses, it's maybe the job description's not written down. We, we continue to put people in different places. We want them to be nimble. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you really ask the employee, what does success look like? They, can't, they cannot explain it. And there that shows you why there's a lot of barriers to creating the culture that you want. 
And unfortunately, managers are equally at a loss to explain their own jobs. So if I don't know what your view of success is, I can't be successful in your eyes and I can only guess. And that guessing creates assumptions and judgments and a lot of what I call workplace drama, obstacles to your peace and your prosperity. So let's look at some examples of what creates a lack of clarity. Policies that are not enforced. I see this a lot. And I often say, if you have a policy and it's not enforced, you're only setting yourself up for a bigger problem. Just get rid of the policy or alter it. Um, because the excuse is, well, at least we have a policy if we ever want to use it. But the truth is it won't stand up in court if it hasn't been enforced in the past. So that confuses employees. It's the elephant in the room. We don't talk about it. It's kind of okay. We wink at it. And so you want to make sure your policies align with where you are now. Um, disciplines that are threatened but forgotten. I'm gonna, you're going to be suspended if you do this again, or this is a mistake that we can't afford to have and yet the mistake keeps happening. Um, something that I hear a lot is, well, I've told them a thousand times. And I'll say, you know what that means? It means that you've allowed the improper behavior 999 times. If you've told them a thousand times, there's someone else guiding the ship. Too many changes too fast. We've already talked about that. This is a big one too that you can just ask yourself. Are people surprised when they lose their job or did they see it coming? When people are surprised, that tells me there's conversations not taking place. There should never be any surprises. If you do it right, people will want to leave because you tried to help them grow and they just, it wasn't the right fit. It was a bad hiring or, or the changes came in, whatever the reason, they'll want to leave, but they won't feel beat up. Uh, poor performance is allowed from certain people. I'll hear this a lot. Well, they're a rainmaker. So yes, they're, they're a bully, they're a persecutor, they're, but they're a rainmaker, they bring it in. Or they really are the only one that understands the inventory system. Or they're the only one that understand the way that we do our cost accounting. Whatever it is, there's something that person knows or has that is seen of value and therefore they are holding the executives or the company owner hostage. This should not be. And the reality is, if they're really a good performer, they would also be, they would also behave properly because behavior should be a, a part of that performance, uh, not evaluation, but the way that we view performance. If you're really a good performer, you're also good with people. You also fit in, you collaborate. And so you have to decide what you're going to allow and why. And um, sometimes that's a tough decision. Um, what's on the walls isn't happening in the halls. An example that comes to mind as I'm thinking about this is um, I see in a lot of healthcare um, websites, it will say we, we're, we're all about compassion. And I worked with a healthcare organization that, you know, their top value is compassion. We were doing a strategy session and I said, how often do you use that word in your conversation? Never. And I said, so what does compassion look like and what does the absence of it look like? They had a hard time answering that. And in the conversation, we find out that there's what they would say is drama. They say, man, our nurses are just on edge. They're, they eat their young. You know, they, they just, they don't, they're really mean. And yet their mission is compassion. And so they want a workshop. <laughs> and come to find out their nurses are working 70 hours a week. So it doesn't take much strategic thinking to see that there's a misalignment there. It's really difficult to be compassionate when, you're, when your physical needs are not being met. A workshop with a bunch of cranky nurses is not going to do you a whole lot of good. It's going to be a waste of money. It's really within the structure. So you can start to look at what creates a lack of clarity. It's when there's misalignment help, I need a workshop. Again, that's what I hear. They've diagnosed the problems in their mind and they say things like, well, our top performer is destructive. Our nurses eat the young. We have a hothead in our department. We don't know what to do. That, that hothead's a relative of the boss. Turf wars are going on between the managers. Uh, there's silos. I think I'm being undermined and no one knows who's really in charge. I get these kind of calls on a regular basis and um, I used to just be happy to go do a stop workplace drama workshop. 
But what I've realized is that if it's in the structure, if it's in the environment, if it's in the culture, a workshop is not going to be enough commitment. And so I often jokingly say it would be better to get a clown than a pizza, because if you just want it to be a checklist and you're just looking at we've got a certain budget, um, let's just do something that's going to get people excited for a day and let's not pretend that any kind of workshop or any kind of expert could come in and change these cultural problems without a real commitment, without diagnosing the problem, because if you aren't clear what the real problem is, you'll apply the wrong solution and wonder why you can't get the results. You cannot get to the island. So here's the quiz and let's see if you got this. So why does the gossip, hothead, Queen bee, potster, troublemaker, crybaby, tattletale. Why are they doing what they do? I've said this several times. Why do they do what they do? Because it works. The one with clarity always navigates the ship. It always comes down to leadership. You can't fix. It's like asking if the parents were saying, we've got a disruptive child. The disruptive child keeps doing this, keeps doing that. Please come and fix my child. Most of the time, it's a leadership issue. The parents are not aligned. They're not clear. It's not always the child. It's mostly the leaders. So that's the way you want to look at an organization. What can we as leaders do? And then we can figure out who needs to go or who needs to shape up. What are we doing that's allowing this kind of behavior? Again, I want you to just remember that and repeat this over and over and over Clarity can change any situation. So this is the first rule of thumb. I'm giving you all my consulting secrets here. When you find that there's some sort of disturbance, some sort of drama, something you cannot figure out, if you will say to yourself, clarity can change any situation, your brain will start to now search for areas where you're unclear. But I'm going to give you some things that you can do right now. Get crystal clear about who's in charge and how decisions are made. I, a lot of times, will hear middle-level managers tell me that they are afraid their decisions will not be supported by the top, and there's evidence to prove that. At the same time, when I'm in the organization, the executives will say, we have micromanagers that won't make decisions, and they're keeping our door open. So it becomes um, a symbiotic kind of problem where the executives think that it's the managers, the managers think it's the executives, and the employees think that it's both the executives and the managers. So what it is, is that we're not clear about who's in charge and how decisions will be made and how they will be supported. The next thing that you can do is get crystal clear about the roles and the responsibilities. Get it in writing. If you haven't done that, make a draft. You can even ask your people to write up their own roles, and then you can have someone that's a good editor, good writer, put it in the proper grammar and format. But at least we get agreement about what we're here to do and who's doing what. Check yourself to see where you might be giving mixed messages. Just do that for a week. Just ask yourself the question, is there somewhere where I might be giving mixed messages? Because if you can figure that out, you're going to change things, even if it's only in a department. Um, you'll see amazing results by just kind of cleaning that up and owning it. So now we're going to go to step two, which is to get connected. And this is really about how relationship dynamics uh, shape culture. So here's the quiz. What do these things have in common? Patients changing physicians, good employees leaving, marriages ending, and turf wars. Well, it's relationships. And relationships is the second root in all drama. So the first root is the lack of clarity. The second root, there's always a relationship issue. And when we talk about relationships, we're not always talking about the way that people get along. We're also talking about other connections. However, today we are going to be talking about the relationship component, but I do want to just make the distinction that we have a relationship with everything. So we have a relationship with the word leader. We have a relationship with authority. We have a relationship with our geographical location, our own culture within a culture, our uh, you know, um, being American or Canadian, you know, whatever we have a connection to, that influences us in a big way. So if you look at these connections, I want to talk about five connections so that you can start to take a look at these within your culture of self, boss, customer, peers, and your job and the job itself. So the second piece of here is to get connected. First, it's get clear. Now it's get connected. And so this is something I really I do a lot of personal, kind of personal, professional coaching on this. 
sometimes we human beings just get completely disconnected from our own values. And when we are disconnected with our own personal lives, maybe going through a divorce, going through a midlife crisis, wondering about our life purpose, when we as a human being are disconnected, there's no way we're going to connect with the boss, the peer, the job. And so sometimes it's just personal disconnection. We've lost our connection. We've lost our alignment to our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being. And until we understand that component, nothing's going to change it. So this is the first thing you want to start looking at as a leader. Am I just disconnected? Am I in the wrong position? Am I not in alignment with the, the company values? Because my belief is that you have to be. You have to be aligned with the company values because if you're not, you're going to struggle. Um, so you've got to be connected within yourself. And um, I want to give like sort of a, a, like a little short scenario that had to do with, it was my personal experience as I was writing, this was really based on my third book, um, Seven Ways to Stop Drama in Your Healthcare Practice. And since I'm helping to care, I'm actually caring for my elderly mother, and that includes a lot of doctor's visits, a lot of surprises. Um, and this particular instance was, um, I had to change my mom's doctor because um, her, her primary physician, which was an internal medicine doctor, became a hospitalist, and so she had to now get another doctor. Well, as you can imagine, that caused a lot of personal drama because she absolutely loved her doctor. And uh, we got a referral, and we got in, and I could tell by sitting in, the wait, sitting in the room with my mom when I saw this doctor, he was yelling at his nurse. I could tell he was having a hard day, and I made a lot of assumptions about his character, obviously, because I'm concerned about my mother. And um, I told my mom, I said, I don't think this doctor is going to be quite as friendly as your other one, so you just need to be ready for that. And when he came in, the first thing he did was get on to me for not bringing the paperwork, and then he started kind of raising his voice about the medications she was on and saying that she shouldn't be on these medications. And... You know, if you would have asked me in a workshop, how would you handle this kind of conflict? I would say I would take a deep breath and I would really get clear about what we're here to do and I would refocus the energy. But I have to admit to you, and I often tell my audiences, I'm willing to share some of my dirt to show you that I'm human and that I take my journey seriously and that I mess up just like everybody else. I'll tell you what, I blew my stack. And I said, listen, mister, you haven't reviewed her files. You don't know who she is. And are you going to be a help to us or are you going to cause trouble? Well, he kind of straightened up and jerked and it was very uncomfortable. But what I can tell you here is there was a disconnect from the purpose of his job, which was him with the patient, the client, the customer. And it caused a huge disconnect. Now, let me finish the story here. I actually cleared this up. And excuse me just for a second. <coughs> I am, um, I apologize and we got it cleared up because that's how I believe, but I can tell you that if you're losing your connection with your customer, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a, a automotive, whether it's aviation, if you're forgetting about your purpose for being in business, you're going to see some results that you don't want from that and you're going to have some drama. And then there's a disconnect from the boss and the culture. So you might have your employees might be very connected, your leaders might be connected, they're connected with their job, their peers, but maybe they're not connected with administration. I've seen this a lot, and it's not that I specialize so much in healthcare, it's just that I've used a lot of examples in this, but I've seen so often where the administration is worried about the money that they're losing, and they're so worried about the prosperity that they're willing to give up the peace, and we have to learn how to have a both-and world. And so I've seen nurse managers and therapists leave because they felt so misunderstood from the administration because from their point of view, they're healers and they need to spend time with patients. But from administration point of view, it's get them in, get them out and type while you're doing it. So I hope you can apply that. I'm glad to take questions on that later about how we can disconnect from either the administration, the boss, it can be on a personal level with a boss, it can be the upper level, it can be the entire top layer of the organization. But when there's disconnect, you're gonna see a lot of turnover, you're gonna see a lot of unwanted issues of people leaving and finding other jobs. And in fact, in one instance here, a great therapist that we had left and 
now the, the organization doesn't even have that kind of therapist. And so you have to look at the whole picture and find ways to bridge that gap through conversation. So here's what you can do now. Look at your own level of connection in the five areas and where are the disconnects? And if you don't know how to find those, you can certainly reach out to me and I can give you a little bit of guidance, but you need to look at self, peers, boss, customer, client, patient, and the job. Where are the disconnects? Because that's gonna tell you where the cultural issues are. Number three is initiate executive conversations. So this is the third. We've talked about clarity, we've talked about connection, and now we're talking about what I call executive conversations. And I have a manifesto on the front page of my website. I'm going to give you a resource because you do not even have to sign up. I'm not going to badger you with emails. Of course, I'd love for you to because you'll get you'll get some content every two weeks. But I have a manifesto that's called How Executive Conversation Drives Results. And in the manifesto, I talk about this principle that conversations either grow your business or slow your business. I have had just personal situations before I ever started writing books where I went to maybe a massage therapist or even a private practice physician of some sort and they spend their time talking about their divorce, their drama, their whatever it is, their workplace. That's not driving more business because I actually left those practitioners. And so you have to understand that when people are unhappy, right or wrong, your front line, they're going to talk to your clients if they have any type of conversation with um, your, your client, they're going to whisper in their ears about ways that they don't like their job. Even though that's wrong, they're going to do it. So conversations either grow your business or slow your business. If you have managers that are my way or the highway, it's slow in your business. You might think they get things done, but look at the leak in the boat. You're going to have turnover in a department. Look at the manager in charge. Look at both the job is it such a difficult job that you can't expect anybody to stay and that's the nature of it or it's only college kids or it's just hard dirty work and they're only going to do it for a few years or is it the leadership because if you've got it in one department it's almost always related to the leadership so i want to talk about this principle of executive conversations um, my first example is about a coo that was avoiding a conversation with his ceo and subordinate and in a nutshell, the issue was the subordinate had become friends with the CEO and was going around his back and getting her own way. In other words, the one with clarity navigates the ship. And he was extremely frustrated. Now, when we get in the mindset of this particular COO, his mindset was my job is to support the boss regardless. And as we dug a little deeper, we find that there were many times he should have had conversations, but he didn't. And he agreed with some of her hiring decisions and some of her policy changes. And without getting into too much detail, what I really saw was that he needed to have two conversations with two different people and there needed to be a strategy to this. And what made him reach out to me was when we actually had the first exploratory call and I asked the question, what is your avoidance of conversation costing you? Is it hundreds of thousands? I mean, can you put a number to it? And he said, you know, when you consider um, the turnover that we've had and the retraining and you consider that we are now also in a lawsuit, it's millions over the last three years. And so we often, that's that invisible shark that we don't see. Our avoidance, our little patterns, it's costing us money and we don't see it. And we're doing it because we think we have to be a certain way and we don't have the skills. So that's just one example of a hidden barrier in the way that we connect with other people. Now here's another example, and this was a small business owner, and he had a client that owed him $250,000. And I just couldn't figure it out. He hasn't been paid and he didn't pull his services. And I said, we've got to figure out a way for you to have a conversation. And his underlying fear was, well, I'm going to lose a big client. And I said, they haven't paid you yet. And so you see this conflict going on internally, which is sort of the head drama part of this. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this is an example of how your conversations either slow your business or grow your business. I also have an example that I think you'll be interested in. And this also is in the... Um, the uh, manifesto on the uh, front page of my web. This was um, in the section of the conversation you avoid today is the lawsuit of the future. And this was a human resources manager 
uh, that had really fallen in love with my work and had we'd had this conversation about what was going on and she said I'm just about the end of a year-long process of managing a disruptive employee the situation ended up with lawyers involved and should reach a settlement today it's been a long and painful process as this employee had been tolerated for 18 years and this employee was occasionally talked to but since she was considered a high performer, she was allowed to carry on hurting patients, family, and staff along the way, as well as creating chaos in her wake of disruption. The entire process has taken a toll on me, my team, and the employee. I didn't realize how hard emotionally and mentally it would really be. So you see, by the time the real conversation had to happen, it had been allowed a thousand times. And what people don't seem to maybe understand is that just getting rid of a problem employee still is difficult because you need those hands. You need their brain. You need what they bring. So doesn't it make more sense to identify these issues early and set very clear expectations of the kind of coaching and support that they're going to get so that they can determine whether or not this is really going to be a fit before you've invested 18 years and then finally a lawsuit. And so this is unfortunate, but I see this more often than not. And what happens, this is one of the telltale signs, so I want to give you this because I told you we would talk about not just the language of the island and the way I really identify obstacles and barriers, but irresponsible language. How do we notice when we've got a culture where there's irresponsible language? Well, here's how you notice it. There's finger pointing. Not my fault, your fault. There's a lot of talk about the past. Well, this is how we used to do it. Well, because of what happened in the past. Well, because of this new law, and there's a lot of focus on the past. We're focusing not on the future, not on the new opportunities. We have to admit the past happened, but when there's focus there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem with your culture. This one is um, perhaps a little bit more difficult to notice, but it's, it's sort of a disempowered kind of language. And what you're going to hear in the language is the absence of choice. Well, I had no other choice. Yeah, but because of that, I really had to do this. And as long as we accept the idea that there's no choices, what we're really falling into is a victim mentality. So when you hear an absence of choice, it means that we're not being resourceful. It means that we're not empowered, that we believe we're at the mercy of the law, the policy, the other people, the way things are, the way things have been. This is a, an issue that when you start to spot this, you can start to change it. With, with really good coaching. And then disrespectful. Once it gets to a certain place, it starts to become personal. And, you know, I am on social media. I post a thought of the day on Facebook. More than welcome to join me there if you want to. A lot of people use it in their morning meetings. It's always very positive and forward moving. But what I notice on social media is a lot of disrespect. Um, you know, we're getting ready before too long to have another election year. And when people disagree, no longer are we willing to listen, no longer are we willing to learn and to really use critical thinking, all of a sudden we're just name calling. We're just name calling and going really, really deep and dirty. And um, that's what we're creating in America right now in our culture. We're creating this through this irresponsible language, the finger pointing, talking about the past, uh, proving how why you're wrong, the disempowerment, no more choice because of some leader um, and, and very disrespectful. So in contrast, responsible language is just the opposite. Taking ownership, focusing on the present and the future, where we really have our power is in the present and in that power we create a new future. We, we step into the act of creating a new future versus problem solving, which, which are two different mindsets and they both have their place, but what I'm really about is creating. What do we want to create? Here's where we are. What do we want to create? And then empowered. What are my choices? What are our choices? What choices could there be? Once we start exploring our choices, we start to get our power back. And then finally, respectful. I respectfully disagree. You know, I see it differently, but I'm open to hearing your point of view. You know, that's tough for me right now. Let's talk about it later. We don't know how to be respectful anymore. We're also triggered by what we don't want to hear, that we are creating cultures in our countries, we're creating cultures in our workplaces, and we truly, I truly believe we need enlightened leaders to guide the way because we've lost our way here. 
And so I want to just give you um, a snapshot of the differences so that you can just see the difference between irresponsible language and responsible finger pointing versus taking ownership, focusing on the past versus the present and the future, being disempowered versus being empowered, and disrespectful versus respectful. So then how do leaders shape culture through executive conversation? It's by their ability to initiate difficult conversations. And when I talk about, excuse me again, <clears throat> when we talk about conflict in, I've got a um, performance conversation model that really is a blueprint of how to talk about difficult issues in the workplace, how to drive performance through coaching and through identifying the real issue. What the premise of the idea is that there is no conflict unless there's an inner conflict. So if you're a sociopath and you don't care how other people feel, no conflict for you, it might be for the other people, but all conflict involves these, these two arrows kind of going in, in opposite directions. Um, and I look at conflict instead of being personal. This has helped me tremendously in my personal and professional relationships and my consulting work in my guiding other executives in their work. Um, if you look at conflict as simply opposing drives, desires, and demands, it can be a relational, emotional, but they're simply opposing drives, desires, and demands. Once we understand that, whether, and I tell people I can have conflict by myself without having another human being involved, but once I understand that my conflict, my drama, is truly just opposing drives, desires, and demands, and it's rooted in a lack of clarity. And the same thing with other people. There's opposing drives, desires, and demands. Once we get clear, we get common ground, then we can move, we can move forward. So the question here that I want to entertain is, what is it that makes a conversation difficult? So if we were in a room together, and I really wish that we were, because I love to learn from the people in the room with me, I think the collective is better than, than the sage on the stage any day. Um, so what makes conversation difficult? Well, there's all kinds of things on the bloom. Oh, well, it's personalities. It's, well, they're on the disc. They're different than I am on the Myers-Briggs, on the Colby. Um, we just disagree. Well, I don't like conflict. There's all kinds of things on the bloom, but I'm about getting to the root. And at the root is resistance. That's what makes it difficult, is our own resistance to the conversation. And so, therefore, there's a trend, which is avoiding difficult conversations. A lot of my work is about that right now. And anyone that says I don't avoid, what I found with people that are in that category, if I don't avoid, I believe we all do. I think it just is a matter of degree. And if you're not avoiding at all, I would say, ask others if they think you're a bully. Because if you're never avoiding, either you've worked at it and you've become so smooth and you just know it's part of life, or you're rough around the edges and don't know it. So that's what I'm finding in my work. What makes it difficult is that we first have an inner conflict. I, I want you to like me, but I also need to tell you something. You know, I want you to improve, but you know what? I'm afraid you might leave. Um, it, it could make you angry. It could make me angry. So I'm afraid of emotions. I'm afraid I might blow up. I'm afraid they're going to get me roped into what I call ping pong. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. That's not fair. Yes, it is. If you've gotten roped into a game of ping pong, it means you've gotten distracted in the conversation. You've lost your clarity. Or a lot of times it's a lack of skill. And so I work from the premise that if people have the lack of skill there and they can get their inner conflict cleared up, the fear of emotions dissipates tremendously. There will always be a little bit of that fear because we're human beings. We're supposed to connect. We're supposed to care about ourselves. We're supposed to care about others. That's how we're wired. It would be cold hearted to, to say otherwise. So as long as we have the right intention and we can clear up our inner conflict, then the, the middle piece, the fear of emotions, we'll still have it, but we'll have the skills to overcome it. We'll have the skills to actually address the elephant in the room once we're able to identify what that elephant actually is. And so what I want to share with you now is what we do instead. And this is one of our distractions. We get into what I call non-productive conversations, and it's where we waste valuable time. You could put money to this by saying how often are we in these conversations? So I'm going to give you what the levels are. So the first level is cluelessness. 
And I get this with a lot of new managers and middle level managers. I get this with a lot of human resource professionals. And here's, I call it cluelessness, not to be mean, but to say unconscious. And here's what it is. I'm wore out. I'm working overtime on the weekends to get my actual paperwork done, to get my work done because I can't get it done during the week because I have so many interruptions. And so why I call this cluelessness is they don't understand their choices. They're disempowered. They think that it's because of everybody else or because of their job, but in reality, they haven't recognized their own choices. So it's like, I don't, I don't know how this is happening. The open door has become a revolving door. What they don't know is how to set boundaries, how to, how to really guide the focus. What happens next, though, is when they do have the awareness of what it is, a lot of times it's from working with a coach or they have the awareness from a webinar like this, they go into mind grind. And mind grind is this. I know this is happening, and now I'm, I have aversion to it. I'm beating myself up, and I'm going back and forth in my mind. Was that too harsh? Was that right? Should I have done that? Should I close the door? Should I say? Should I sit about back and forth, back and forth? Now you have that conflict once again that's inner conflict. I know it's happening, and it feels worse to know it's happening than to not know why. That's the mind grind. That leads to the third level, which is avoidance. Okay. I'm just going to bury my head in the sand. I just, I cannot take it. I know it's happening. And so I'm just going to avoid, I'm not going to be at the office. I'm going to take my work home, whatever that is, there's this avoidance and it's, it's draining your energy. And that leads to the fourth level, which is anger. I blow up and now people think I need anger management. By the way, I've got a class on that. It's through lynda.com. You might want to look that up, but it's this anger. And I think it's anger management. But what I tell people is most of the time, it is not an anger issue. It's an awareness issue. We didn't notice the first irritation and therefore it built up and out of avoidance, we actually had the anger. And so what happens is, we're either in one of two stages. We're either avoiding or we're angry, avoiding, angry. And they feed each other. Once again, there's a symbiotic relationship. The more I avoid, the more I feel resentful. The more I feel resentful, the more I avoid. And then I do things to distract myself, whether it's gambling, shopping, drinking, working overtime. And now my body needs connection. It needs rest and I blow up. So that's kind of the cycle that happens. So here's what you can do now. You can get clear about how whatever the issue is that you're facing, how it affects your culture, however you define culture. What is this issue that you've identified, the elephant in the room, how is it affecting your culture? Now, if you can articulate, whether you're at middle level, high level, front line, if you can articulate how the issue affects the business. In other words, there's turnover because of this. We've increased our unwanted turnover. We can't afford that in today's marketplace. It's affecting us that way. We're losing our best people. You never lose your worst ones, right? So articulate how the business, how the issue affects the business financially. You can get a free assessment for me if you want to email me later. It's a one sheet. It's not, again, I'm not going to ask you to join anything, but it is a culture assessment to see if you have a culture of avoidance. And so I'm going to read you a couple of, it kind of, here, here's what it looks like. It's just one sheet. Um, and so it's like a poor performer continues to collect a paycheck. Uh, there's an excessive amount of turnover in one or more departments. The top performer is a bully. So it's just a checklist. You check it off. And, you know, I'm even willing to go over it with you if you want to send an appointment. I'm taking some time in December and January to do that where you can really look at the cultural issues. But this gives you a snapshot. It's just a checklist. Give yourself 10 points. If you're at 50 or above, you've got some avoidance problems. Um, identify what kind of skills training your managers need to initiate conversations that get results. Because a lot of times it's just skill. You've been busy. You've been adding people. They didn't get quite the training. There's not this agreement from the top about how it needs to be. Once you get that in line, you end up recouping your investment 10 times over. So I often say if leadership's about anything, it's about alignment. And alignment is about focusing energy. Now, I know that's kind of complex and deep. So just take a snapshot of that or write it down. Think about it later. I'll try to make this clear. You can't have alignment if you don't have clarity. You've got to know what island you're going to before you can even align to it. If I don't know what direction I'm going, I can't align to that. So a value of your company, of your organization, that's, that's an issue that you can align to or not. It can be embodied or not. And so if leadership's about anything, you have to be clear first. It's about alignment, and alignment is about focusing energy. In other words, I know where I'm going, and I'm focusing on the island called Peace and Prosperity, and now... I'm getting others to row in the same direction instead of rowing to the island called look what Sally did or that's not fair. 
I'm now getting alignment with my entire team. And that's when it starts to get really, really fun. So what I know is that the shareholders or the owners, they simply want to get to the treasure chest on the island. That's their alignment. They want to get there. The manager wants everybody to row harder and faster, and the rower just wants a better seat cushion on the boat. So what you have to do is you have to understand that you have to see all these parts and pieces, and if the company wants to grow, the culture is probably going to have to change. I'm going to end by saying this, and then we'll open up for some questions. You know, leadership is, is not easy, and the one way you know you're a leader is when you're starting to get criticized. People can point out what you should have done, could have done, what they would have done better. Um, you're going to truly, you know, I think business ownership, entrepreneurialism, and leadership, those three areas, it, it's really going to show you who you are, and that's going to be your greatest opportunity for personal growth outside of marriage and children. Life offers us all kinds of avenues to get our personal growth, and leadership truly is an act of courage. And here's why I say that. There's certain things that as a leader only you can do. You can get someone to do the payroll and do the hiring, but only you can do your inner work. And you can get someone to clean the office, decorate, but only you can do your inner work. And when you're a leader, you have to really spend more time looking in the mirror than looking out the window. Because if you're looking out the window, you're going to say things like, well, there's no budget. And that may be true. Or you're going to say, well, our employees aren't engaged. And you can find evidence. And you're going to say, we've got some poor performers and there's really not much I can do. And you can say, I really didn't get the training that I should have gotten and they're expecting more of me than they should. And that's probably accurate too. But when you're really and truly a leader, you take responsibility and you look in the mirror and you say, you know what, this is me. I'm a leader. What are my choices? What are my next steps? And what island am I trying to get to? And when you do that, you're taking full ownership and you're really representing leadership from the perspective that leadership is truly an act of courage. And thank you so much for being with me. And I am going to open it up now with Banya to see if there's any questions. Great. Thank you so much, Marlene. That was a great presentation. Um, I've got a couple questions here. The first one's coming from Anna. She says, how can I screen out dramatic employees when hiring? Ah, that's, a, that's really great because if you can catch it then, you know, I've often said the best sales job that anyone ever gives is the one where they sold you on hiring. <laughs> and so there's certain things we're never going to really know. But one thing I would do is I would listen for responsible language, listen for empowerment. Um, everybody knows the answer in a workshop. Um, here's what I would try to listen for. Tell me a time when you weren't the hero, when you messed up and what you learned from it. And you might even give them that question in advance because I think sometimes I think about myself. I don't want to be tricked going into an interview. I want to understand and really think deeply about how I'm going to answer my question. So I kind of come from a different place of let people have some preparation and then do some questions that are, are um, you know, on the spur of the moment. But let people think deeply about uh, where they've you know, where they struggle, just like what I told you with the doctor, you know, whenever I, I told him off and I was pretty aggressive. I'm embarrassed about that because of what I teach and what I do. But what I learned from it is that anybody can be caught off guard. And I cleaned it up. I apologize. I set up a meeting and we cleared the air. Now, unfortunately, my mom didn't get to want to keep going to that doctor, even though the next time we went, he was very, very nice. But the trust had already been broken. So, like, I share that story because I never want someone to think, well, Marlene doesn't walk her talk. And I will say, I don't all the time, but I do try. So you want to hear a, a little bit of humility of, I'm introspective. I have made some mistakes. And I have learned from it. And this is what I would do in the future. So I would say that would be my number one suggestion. So you're looking for signs of high emotional intelligence. I would. I would say like what I've learned and like I kind of know myself. Like I know for me when I travel, I have to be there. If I'm doing a project or a speaking engagement or a workshop, whatever, 
I know myself. I have to be there the day before. That has to be included in the contract. It has to be included in the travel. Am I trying to be a diva? No. I just know myself. I'm not going to be at my best if I'm struggling and stressing through traffic because of the way I'm built. It's not an excuse. It's just the way that I am. And I have tried to do it the way everybody else does. Oh, I flew right in. And I got there and I barely made it in the nick of time. And I gave my presentation, forgot my socks. That's just not the life I want to live. I'm very clear about that. And so look for people that are clear about who they are, who their values are what their own emotional intelligence is because you'll get a lot more from someone that wants to grow and is willing to share with you how they've how they've learned over past mistakes yeah great thank you if anyone else has questions just um, type them into the chat box or use the Q&A function I have another one here that says do, do you have any culture team building activities or exercises you suggest to clients Absolutely. You know, we, we could talk about that more on the phone. Um, I think it really, it's all, it all depends. It's all so relative. But I would say as far as um, activities, focus on the relationships because when people start to have conversations with each other and they start to feel those good endorphins and it's not just flavor of the month, I think that's the problem. So I want to, I want to address it from this perspective. I see initiatives like engagement and culture and teamwork being very much a checklist. And so I would be very intentional in really creating conversations to hear ideas and to try to start using the ideas of the people involved. And what I'll say about that is this. I, for, for over 20 years, I was a blue collar factory worker. I mean, people don't know that unless they dig on my website. Um, I had a major life tra transformation um, and jumped and started a career, went on and got my degree and my master's and all that kind of stuff. Since then, I've written three books and I've traveled the country and all this. But when I was a blue collar employee, and I write about this in, in No Drama Leadership, a lot of times we weren't really asked our opinion on things. And there were decisions made from marketing at corporate headquarters that made our lives horrible. And and I know the reason that we're not asked sometimes at that frontline level is there's the mindset of, well, they don't understand the business. Well, precisely, that's true. So a bad idea doesn't mean it's a bad employee or a stupid employee. It means they don't understand the business and how decisions are made, especially in the Fortune 500 and, and, and the bigger businesses, which I was a part of. So what that means is when they're giving you bad ideas, it still means they're interested and engaged because they're initiating conversation. So that's an opportunity to teach how it's done and to teach them to understand the culture of how things are done in a bigger business and why they're done that way and to still acknowledge that they're engaged. So I say the first focus is relationships and conversation. I mean, that's when I started this, my whole intention was to improve communication and relationships everywhere because through relationships, we can get everything done. So I would say rather than worrying so much, or th and I like your question, but I would say rather than thinking of it as activities, think about how we can build conversation and relationship because that's going to guide you where you need to go. Okay, that's great. So maybe like building little teams or building groups of people to, to work together. Yeah, or to converse about something. So let's say that you've got an obstacle that you've identified. Uh, you, could, you could have little groups that come up with potential solutions or why they think it's happening or you know that kind of thing. You could have a meeting where you say, we're gonna have a 10-minute conversation, divide into groups and let's talk about this. Because once people feel engaged in the problems and engaged in the solutions, you're creating trust, you're creating camaraderie, and then when you report back and say, we had great ideas. Here's some ideas that we thought were great. We're not there yet, and, and here's why. But we're yeah. still glad for the ideas because it led to this. And so when you start sharing ideas, even on a small, like, for example, you know, me working in a, a factory, there was times when the rotations were horrible because of something new that marketing had given us. And uh, one time I came up with a new way to rotate to give everybody a break. But see, in a factory culture, it's all about seniority. And it doesn't matter if the lower level people are doing the harder work all day long. But if you truly start talking about what's fair, what's right, what makes life easier, it's about rotating in a way that gives everybody a little piece of the hard work and, and everybody a little piece of the difficult work. And when you start doing that, and then you can say, let's try a pilot for two nights, or let's try a pilot for a month, and let's come back together and talk about what worked and what didn't. Now you're not making a promise that there's a big change, and you're also not doing the flavor of the month we talked about it, but nothing happened. So you actually have to execute on some of that, but you just want to find ways to engage conversation. Great, thanks. 
Um, okay, the next question here, how do I coach an employee who doesn't take responsibility? There always seems to be excuses. Uh, that's, I love that question. Wow, we could do a whole workshop on that. So you have to be willing, first of all, to understand, like, are they not getting any consequences from their irresponsibility? Because you can't create accountability if they just keep getting by with it. And so what I try to look for, <clears throat> the short version of some of my, excuse me, <clears throat> I call it coaching to empowerment. You want to find out if the issue is a skill, a priority, a clarity issue, or if they're just not willing. Because if it's a skill issue, and you, you know, this is probably on your part may take some coaching to really get this to, to help you, but I want to give you as much as I can. What you're testing for is their willingness. So if you say, well, so I need you to train again with Kim this week because I'm thinking that you've missed this documentation. Um, would you be willing to train with Kim? Well, I mean, I'd have to come in early to train with Kim. So there, that shows you resistance, which is the third root in all drama. Yes, you would have to train with Kim and you'd have to be in early. Are you willing to come in early? So you don't start going to the island called, well, I knew you weren't going to do it. And they're like, yeah, but you're trying to make it more difficult. You know, I've got three kids and no babysitter. You don't get into those conversations. You just test for willingness. Would you be willing to train with Kim if you come in at, at 930 instead of eight? So it, remove the barrier or ask them to go against the barrier because you're going to test for their willingness. If it's a willingness issue, you're not going to change the person. They're perfectly happy getting by with poor performance. You're going to have to decide what's the next step. And unfortunately, if they're not willing, that, that may be having to release them. Yeah, very true. Okay, this is um, our last question here. If a department has a lot of turnover, how can I increase engagement? Well, I wouldn't worry about increasing engagement. I would look at who the leader is. If a department has turnover, you first have to get conversation and you have to understand what the real problem is. Is, is the lack of engagement even causing a problem? Maybe it's not. So don't make an assumption that, you know, I, when I, again, when I worked in the, in the factory, there was this kind of checklist mentality. Well, engagement, we didn't call it that back then. It was called something else. There's always new management techniques and so on. Well, if they're participating in the safety slogan, if they're joining a, a focus group, if they're on a committee for Black History Month, um, if they're um, on the steering committee and volunteering their time, that, that's engagement. And it, and it can be. But real engagement is about initiative and involvement. It's about an excitement. It's not a checklist to have an activity to go fill out a sheet. So I'm not saying that's what you're doing at all, but I wanted to, you, you provided the framework for me to talk about the ways we view, which is a relationship issue. We're viewing engagement as a checklist. I would really, I would hire a consultant to come in and find out why there's the turnover. There's a reason. And you may not get underneath that reason, but I'll say it's probably the relationship with the boss because if it's, if it's the same kind of work in different departments, it's either the work is not rewarding or there's the leader is negative or the leader doesn't know how to lead. Um, I take dance lessons. I love to do Lindy Hop and, and um, I love to do uh, swing and, and all this kind of stuff. And I go to different places and there's different cultures with different um dance instructors in different clubs where you go to learn how to do the skill. And in some places, the instructor takes command of the room. You don't waddle in 15 minutes late, everybody's chatting and, and nobody's ready. You know, there's another place where it's like a laid back culture and I'm not criticizing, but I want to make the distinction that it all has to do with the leader, not the people that are coming. The leader sets the tone. So if there's a lack of engagement, that's signifying a lack of interest. It's signifying feeling beat down or, or, or disempowered. So it's either that the work is so difficult, so dirty, so unrewarding, whatever that is, either the job itself or it's the leader or both. And a lot of times a really good leader can even make dull jobs really fun and interesting. And so I would say, look at the leadership, but you're going to have to, again, find ways for people to express why that's happening instead of assuming that it's because they're not engaged. Right. Very cool. Um, this, we actually have one more question here from Jenny just came through. When building a team, how important is it or is it important to hire someone who has the characteristic as a relator? Wow. It, it's all, that's such a big question. That's kind of like saying, I want to go to the, I want to go to the island. I'm in the middle of the ocean, which way? Um, 
I think it's more about clarity than it is about that. Yes, it's important to relate. But if we're clear, like let's say, for example, I'm on a team and it's really important that at least one person be able to argue and be like they have to be an attorney. Well, do I need them to be my best friend or is that just part of their skill? And we know that and that's fine. That's what we hired them for. So I think it's more about clarity. It's not about kumbaya. We all have to get along, but when we get along because we understand the roles that each person plays. So we can all improve upon our personalities. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've got lots of work left to do. So it's less about that. And I do believe some of the Colby's and the, all these things that we take, that can really help us to, to get the right team members in place. So I'm not discounting that. But I think clarity comes first. If we understand why and what people do, their roles, their responsibilities, what we need, what those quirks are going to mean to us, I think it's just a lot easier than to expect everybody to just get along and agree with each other all the time. Thanks. Um, well, this, we've got a comment here. Someone said, just want to say thank you. This was so timely and relevant to me. You're awesome. And I really appreciate this advice. Oh, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> thank you so much. I love that because it's, it's really a challenge to not be in the audience and hear the, the feedback and to answer the questions. So I appreciate that comment a lot. And I really do want to invite you to go to MarleneChisholm.com or if you want to email me to get that um, uh, culture assessment, I'm glad to just pop that over by email. Great. Thank you so much, Marlene. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, if you want to watch the replay of this webinar or any of our past webinars, head on over to leadx.org to pick up a free uh, three-day trial of all of our webinars and courses. Thank you, everyone, and have a great weekend. Bye. Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take a minute, leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings are invaluable for attracting new listeners. And I like to convert those listeners into leaders because you know I'm on a mission to spark 100 million leaders in the next 10 years. And if you wanna become the boss everyone fights to work for and nobody wants to leave, check out the LeadX platform with Coach Amanda at leadx.org. And if you have 10 or more managers who could use some binge-worthy training, send me an email at info at leadx.org, L-E-A-D-X dot O-R-G. And we'll talk about getting you set up with a totally free pilot for those managers. See if they like it. If they don't, that's fine. We go away. Part as friends. But if they love it, you've just found yourself a new resource for them. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How are you going to lead today?